Welcome to the podcast of Life Church in Houston, Texas. We are so glad that you are joining us today. We hope that this message inspires your week, builds your faith, and ultimately brings you closer to Christ. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Well, navigating life. Navigating life is been an amazing series so far, and I'm really looking forward to the next three weeks. Today, we're talking about God's pattern. Next Sunday, we're going to be talking about uh, the Spirit, uh, being baptized in the Spirit. Bo's going to be preaching that. And then the last Sunday, here in Houston, Andrew is going to be preaching in Friendswood. Tito's going to be preaching, and the subject is going to be teaching your children. So uh, I've really enjoyed that. We started with week one just talking about the existence of God and the power of believing, the power of faith, the power of knowing that God is real, and then the ramifications for us, the the way that it impacts our life, our decisions, the way that we act, where we go. And this is what we decided, that God is dependent on nothing and everything is dependent on God. That's how we believe God is. He is the mighty creator. And of course, we believe that that is essential for navigating life because when you believe in God, you submit to his authority. He has the right to tell you how to live. The second week, we talked about the Word of God, the Bible, talked about how the Word impacts us. And, and here at Life Church, we believe that the Bible is reliable, infallible. It is the inerrant Word of God, and it's given to us for instruction. Again, this is a tool that is essential for navigating life because it is the roadmap that God has given us uh, to follow the instructions, the teachings of Jesus and how to live the life that he has called us to live. Last week, we talked about the church, how the church is now God's people and God's temple, how God moves and works among us, and how he intends for us to be in koinonia, fellowship, where we are working together, we're joined together, we pray together, we have a teaching together, and I'm thankful for the church. Anybody thankful for the church today? Amen. All right. So today is our fourth week of this series, and today we're going to be talking about God's pattern, how God has created us and how he depends and expects us to live. And this is what I was thinking about. I was thinking about how navigating correctly, if I want to correctly navigate my life, I need to consider the way I go, the turns that I make, the direction that I'm headed. Because if I have a place that I want to end up in, and I, I personally want to end up with a strong relationship with Jesus Christ, so when I see him, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, now enter into my rest, then I have to make sure that I make the turns that will get me to that place, that destination. Years ago, I was in... Um, a crusade in Baguio. I see Mike Langford standing back there. He was with me on that trip. And I, I think there's a couple of others that were with us. I, I think that was um, at the end, of, uh, oh, at the beginning of 2000, if I remember correctly, year 2000. And um, Baguio, for all of you that don't know the layout of the Philippines, it's very close to the northern tip of 
the Philippines in the island of Luzon, and it's, it's a high elevation. It's about 56, 5,700 feet elevation, which makes it uh, the coolest spot in the Philippines. It's cool, and, and sometimes it's actually even cold, and, and, and to get there is um, quite a navigation. The road up there is winding, and it goes through the mountain, and uh, we were up there for a great crusade, and I, I really uh, look back on that with such fond memories, how God helped us and blessed us and moved that day. And, and I think we had about 20 guys with us. And, and at the end of that day, Jay was with us too, now that I think about it. At the end of that day, Curtis Rogers was with us, if he's in Friendswood. Okay, that's all the names I'm going to use. All right. At the end of that Sunday afternoon service, I guess it was about five or six o'clock, we started heading back to Manila, going back to Manila catch the plane there, and go home. And, and uh, this is the thing that you need to know about the Philippines. It is an amazing city, with uh, amazing country, with one of the worst um, infrastructures as far as freeways and roads that you can imagine. I mean, it just they just don't have the roads like we have here. And, and uh, we came off of the mountain that day, and, and it takes you about two hours to get off the mountain. We got, came down to Urdaneta, and, and when you get to Urdaneta, there is a fork in the road, and, and, and both ways lead to Manila. The, the problem is, is one way is a four-hour trip, and the other way is a 10-hour trip. And by this time, we were exhausted, and I think all of us were asleep, and, and we were trusting the bus driver. And, and I remember when we were at that turn that I, I woke up just a little bit to, to see that the driver was in a little bit of confusion, and uh, he had stopped and asked somebody on the side of the road. And, and so we were looking to get back to Manila I guess about midnight, maybe one o'clock in the morning. And that one wrong trip, that one wrong turn took us not down through Tarlock where we should go, but the other way around, 10 hours, rough roads, sometimes no road, and uh, finally got into Manila about 6, 6.30 the next morning. And it was, it was horrible. That, just a simple turn, you know, sometimes... And, and I think everybody in this room at one time or another has made a wrong turn. You physically, for sure. I mean, in the city of Houston, you turn, you circle the block, whatever you have to do. But I'm talking about spiritually. Haven't we all sometime or another taken a wrong turn? And isn't it amazing how those wrong turns have a way of uh, detouring our life? And sometimes we go on rough roads. Sometimes we go where there are no roads and it leaves us exhausted until we can get back to the place where God wants us to be. So a lot of being in God's pattern of life is just simply this. It's simply making the right turns, the right choices, the right decisions with the way that we're going to live and the way that we're going to look at the decisions that are in front of us. Paul saw this. And, and he has this incredible book that is the book of Romans. Romans is one of the greatest uh, pieces of liter literature in the history of the world. And in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul really dives into doctrine. He talks about uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, baptism, living a spirit-filled life, repentance. There's so many rich things in those first 11 chapters. And then when he gets 
to chapter 12, Paul changes his tone and now he's telling us how to live according to the doctrine that we have received in the first 11 chapters. And he starts the 12th chapter off like this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you. I plead with you. In other words, after everything that I have written to you and everything that I have laid out and the, the beautiful walk with God and, and all of the things that you can have, I am pleading with you to give your bodies, everybody say your bodies, give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind that he finds acceptable. This is truly the way to worship. And then he goes on to say in the second verse, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. When you learn to know God's will for you, uh, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, now this passage of scripture is, is something that most Christians learn early on in their walk with God. Most studies that are leading you into a walk with God will have this scripture uh, as part of their curriculum. And, and it's, it's notable, it's, it's, it's appropriate because this passage of scripture really helps us understand what our responsibility is according to everything that God has done for us. Some say that this passage of scripture, Romans 12, one and two, is a formula on how to avoid living a wasted life. And it truly is a yielding. When Paul says there, yielding your body, he's really talking about our total personality. You see, the body is the instrument through which we express ourselves, It is the instrument which we show who we are. It's the mind, it's the affections, it's the will, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through us. And any of those can use the body. I think all of us have at one time or another had our bodies controlled by our affections or our anger or by our will. And what we want to do is we want the Holy Spirit to control our bodies. We want the Holy Spirit to, uh, to reign supreme in our attitudes and in our actions. And I think that this passage of scripture should bring to mind for all of us a question. And that question is, does God have all there is of me to have? Does God have all of me that there is to have? This is what that scripture is saying. I want to give everything to God. I want to completely give him my bodies. Now, our bodies, our humanness, our, our, uh, it's, of course, part of our flesh. It's, it's um, our flesh that, that also has our desires. It's our flesh that also carries our sins. We give those to the Lord. Our bodies, therefore, includes not only the physical being that we are, but also the fleshly being that we are. It not only includes the God hunger that is placed in us by the creator 
but it also contains the evil intentions that are a result of fallen man and living in a sinful world, our mind, our emotions, and our wills. And this is what the scripture tells us is that when we really give our bodies to the Lord, that we are not to conform or fit into the mold or the fashions of the world. It, it, it means don't let them put you in a mold. I probably, all of us here at one time or another have had a cake or jello or something that has come out of a mold and it's in the shape of the mold that it was in. This scripture is really saying, don't let the world put you in a mold so that you look like them, act like them and be a part of them. And again, this is where Paul is telling us how to give our bodies and not to be a copy of the world. You see, this is what we need to understand. Everybody that is a follower of Jesus, I want you to listen to me. This is an old saying, but it is a true saying. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. That's what God has called us. He's called us out. He's called us to be separate. He's called us as a unique people, as a peculiar people, as the scripture says, a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. He has called us out so that we are in the world, but we don't give ourselves to the way that the world is or the patterns of the world. John said, uh, Jesus said it like this in John chapter 15, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it but you are no longer part of the world. Everybody say, I no longer belong. I'm here. This is where I live. This is where I make my living. This is where I eat. This is where I have my home. But this is not really where I belong. I have a part of another kingdom. And that other kingdom is the kingdom of God. And I continue to walk in the kingdom of God because my desire is to spend eternity with God. This place we call heaven, which is really in the presence of God for all of eternity, that's my desire. Does anybody desire that? Does anybody desire just to have that eternal home as your future? And so we have to make sure that we don't belong to the world. Now, the thing about it is, is the world is always getting us to try to belong to them. Our flesh is always trying to get us to belong to the world. And it truly is that there is a God kingdom. There is a kingdom of God that is worldwide. And it is people that have devoted themselves to the Lord, that have given themselves to the Lord, that have, have yielded their bodies and are not conforming to the pattern of the world. And then there is the culture of this world. Now, I know that the culture of this world changes depending on where you are geographically. It's the, the things and the pressures that we have here in America are probably not the same things and pressures that they have in the country of Peru. The things that we are dealing with in our social media and the things that are happening there are probably not the same issues that they are facing in other parts of the world. So it's every culture that tries to come against what God's kingdom is. And this is really what culture is. Everybody, well, well, what are you talking about the culture of the world? The culture is what is made important. It's what is made important. Now, I want you to just think about our world, the United States of America, over the last several months, years, 
what really has been made important. I do believe that there are some incredible things that have come to light that our culture has made important that truly is important. But there are also things that our culture makes important that is not important to us as members of the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, many times they're distractive and divisive. They're destructive and divisive. Let me, let me give you an example. The culture of this world will tell you, live for the now. <laughs> live for the now. Live for this world. Live for what you can achieve here. Live for how many toys you can accumulate. Live for this moment. And, and that message means don't have any restraint. That message means do what you want to. That message means don't worry about tomorrow, whereas the kingdom, the Bible tells us, do not love this world, but live for eternity. Amen. Amen. I don't want to live for just now because this is what I know about now. Now, sin is only for a season. Now is that many times the now takes me away from the walk that I have with Jesus Christ and the walk with Jesus Christ is living for eternity. This is how Paul said it in 1 John chapter 2, and I'm actually going to read this in two translations. First of all, in the New Living Translation, it says, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father. It's just that simple. We can't give ourselves to live for the now because if we love the now, we're not gonna have the love of the Father. Verse number 16 says it like this. For the world, this is what the world offers. This is what the culture of the world offers. Whatever philosophy comes and whatever they try to say to you and whatever they try to teach you, it's all wrapped up in this. Only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. The old King James said it like this. The the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are not from the Father but are from this world. Now listen to verse number 17, because in verse number 17, Paul, John brings it all together and he says, and this world is fading away. <laughs> it's fading away. It, it, it's going to come to an end. And when it goes, when it fades away, when it comes to an end, along with everything that people crave, The sins, the desires, the temptations, all of that's going to end. But anyone who does what God pleases, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Now, I want to read that again to you, and I want to read it from the message because it's just such common language for us. And it says, don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's good. Love of the world squeezes out the love of the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. Amen. It just isolates you from him. I think we understand what isolation means after the last two years of the pandemic, right? We, 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 we got a good idea of what the isolation is. I don't want to be isolated from the Father. And the things that are in the world, 
They isolate me from him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. So if I am a kingdom of God citizen, this is what I need to realize. I am going to spend more time in eternity than I will ever spend in this life. I don't care how long I live. I don't care if you're the oldest person in the world. I saw the other day where there was a couple somewhere and they were, I don't even remember the number, but they were both 113 and I think they were celebrating like 80 years of marriage. I was like, wow. Do you know what that is uh, up against eternity? It's insignificant. It's such a small amount. And that's something that we need to understand as followers of Jesus Christ is that I'm always going to spend more time in eternity that I'm going to spend on earth. And the things that I pursue on earth are going to fade away. So why wouldn't I spend the time that I have on earth pursuing the greater reward of eternity? It just is common sense to say, I want to be with God for eternity. And, and Jesus uh, taught this throughout the scripture. And, and Paul says it in the book of Colossians chapter three and verse number two, it says, set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. I, I, I want my affections on things above. I, I want to lay up my treasures in heaven. I want to look towards that time of eternity. I want to look towards that time of being with Christ, of spending eternity with him. And this is important. Let me give you another example about our culture. Our culture of the world today will tell you it's your body. Do with it what you want to. Do what feels good. But the Bible, the kingdom of God says our bodies belong to God. Everybody say my body. My body belongs to God. Now this follows the navigation of life. If I believe that God is the creator and that his word is true and that the church is here to teach, then it's just a follow through that this is something that we would learn and know. And that is that our bodies belong to Christ. It's teaching in the word. And I've read this before. I think I read it last week, actually. Let's read it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 19. Don't you realize that your body, and that's where he's talking in the plural, he's talking about the church in Corinth, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself. Then he goes into the singular. You do not belong to yourself. For God brought you singular with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Now, I'm not expecting it to get real loud in here today. Because this is a, a message that is contrary to the culture of the world. But the church has always been countercultural. Jesus himself was a great revolutionary when it came to living the way that God wants us to live and not go along with the flow or the current of not only religion, but of the flesh. And I know that we live in a culture that doesn't want to be told what to do with their bodies. As a matter of fact, that's some of the biggest fights and the biggest disagreements that we have on our cultural landscape. Don't tell me what to do with our body. 
Don't tell me what to do with our body. If you, if you are uh, against abortion, then, then the first thing they're going to tell you, uh, then don't, don't tell me what to do with my body. And, and, and just for the record, th- this church is firmly against abortion because we believe that. Thank you. Now, I, 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 I know that there are going to be some points that I'm going to make that you're going to want to clap on and and normally I love for you to clap, but I don't want anybody that's here to feel like we are rah-rahing against them. And there are probably, more than likely, women in this church that have had an abortion. And I want you to understand something from the beginning. It does not matter in the sight of God if you've had it. He loves you. He loves you. And just because the church takes a stand against abortion doesn't mean that we're taking a stand against a woman that has had an abortion. We want people to understand that children are a gift from God and that God himself takes time to form and to fashion each child in its mother's womb. And so we are so strong on honoring the sanctity of life. And that's why we take a stand. Of course, the, uh, the issue is, don't tell me what to do with our body. And I want you to know that I am not qualified to stand and tell anybody what to do with their body. But the Bible that I'm representing and the gospel that I'm representing is more than qualified to speak into the culture and say, this is not an action that will be pleasing unto God. Amen. Amen. The the culture says, have sex with whoever you want to, whenever you want to. And God says, wait a minute, I've set a boundary for sex. uh, He is the creator. He created sex, but he set a boundary for that that action. And that, that boundary, according to the Bible, is to be reserved for marriage. It's to be reserved for marriage. And again, I'm not pausing for you to clap. I'm okay with you being quiet today and just listening because I know that this is an awkward uh, subject for us to talk about. But the truth of it is, is we see what the Bible says about marriage. Again, am I qualified to tell people what to do with their bodies? No, I don't have a science degree. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist, but this is what I am. I am a representative of what the word of God has to say. And it is my responsibility to bring that truth with the incredible love of Jesus Christ. This is what I find in the scripture. When they found sinners like a woman with adultery, the religious people stood around and wanted to kill her. And Jesus is looking and saying, hey, if you're without sin, go ahead. And this is his response to the woman. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's a love. And that's the way that the church should be. We should be putting ourselves in the position of of lovingly saying that's not what we should do instead of being um, in in an attitude where it's uh, that somebody's less than us. I love how Paul, uh, his progression of ministry, the Galatians, one of the first books that he ever wrote, this is what he said about the other disciples. They couldn't add anything to me. In other words, buddy, I knew it all. And yet when you follow Paul's writing and you get down to one of the last books that he writes, he says, I am the chief of sinners. 
And that's really the way that the church should be. We should understand the mercy that has been given us. Has anybody received the mercy of Jesus Christ? We should understand the grace that has been extended to us. And it is the responsibility of the church to offer that same mercy and grace to others. So we see that there is a marriage and that sex should be in a marriage. And according to what the word of God says, marriage is between a man and a woman. And this is what it says, that anything outside of that is a sin. Anything outside of that is a sin. And, and the culture that we live in wants to believe that we have autonomy on those decisions. You know what autonomy is? It's self-governance. I can do what I want to do. I can decide what I want to do with my body. I can decide how I am going to understand my identity, my gender. And, and the truth of it is, when we see this de desire in humanity to say, I'll determine my own way, my own path, it is the oldest lie of Satan. Isn't it the lie that he told Eve in the garden? Here's Eve in the garden walking with God and she's not satisfied with her creative purpose and identity. And instead of being Eve, the, the wife of Adam, she wants to be like God. And the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter three and verse number five, it says, God knows your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, the temptation of Satan. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave it to her husband who was with her. He ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, now I want you to understand they failed God. They disobeyed God. They brought sin into the world, but God didn't stop loving them. Just like God never stopped loving us when we were in sin. This is what I find from my times in sin is that when I was there, God was searching for me. Does anybody have a testimony that when you were far from him, he was searching for you? And that's exactly what happens in this passage. When Eve says, no, I'm not going to follow the identity that you've given me. I want to be like you. I want to be as God falling. And yet verse number eight says, when the cool of the evening breeze were blowing, the man and the woman heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? This is what we need to understand. We need to understand today that we are finite, not infinite. We are finite. That means that we have limits and we have boundaries. We are finite in our authority and in our flesh. And, and, and that irks us. <laughs> that gets under our skin. Just like Eve, we don't want to be finite. We don't want to have limits and we don't want to have boundaries. And the flesh says, I want to do what I want to do. And so this is what we do. We convince ourselves that we can be in charge of our life. We can be in charge of our sexuality. We can be in charge of our decisions and everything will be okay. And why do I say that? Because I've been there. Has anybody in this room ever convinced yourself that the wrong that you were doing is okay? Of course you have. 
It's basic human nature. But this is what we need to understand. God said in the book of Jeremiah chapter 17 and 9, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. I I want you to just pause for a minute and really let this sink into you. He didn't say it's one of the most deceitful things. He didn't say that it's in the top three. (laughs) He said it is the most deceitful things and desperately wicked. In other words, it there's no lie that is more convincing than the lie that you tell yourself. There, there's no lie more convincing than the lie that you work up in your own mind about how I can do this and why I can do that and how this is justified in my life. And there, there's no lie more convincing And there's not a lie that you'll stick by longer than the lie that you tell yourself because the heart is deceitfully wicked. Look at that last part of that verse. (laughs) Who really knows how bad it is? Who really knows? And, and, And while the world is saying, the culture of the world is saying, just follow your heart. Heart fulfillment is where you'll find true happiness. The scripture tells us the desires of our heart and the desires of our flesh are not necessarily good for us. And many times they're bad for us and will lead us to live a lie. The advice be true to your heart fails when we understand that the heart is deceitful above all things. And who can know it? (laughs) Let me me just say it this way. Our understanding of ourself is completely flawed. Our our knowledge of ourselves is completely flawed. Who we are is completely, what we think is completely flawed. We can't help it. (laughs) We can't help it. It is our human nature to try and justify ourselves. However, God isn't flawed in his understanding of us. He sees our heart. He knows the words that are in our mouth, the thoughts that we think. He sees us as we stand before him as if there is nothing, no barrier that can hide us from him. You see, this is what we need to understand, that his design and his knowledge of that design isn't flawed, but sin is flawed. And sin brings about failure. So while culture tells us that no one has a right to tell us what to do with our bodies and no one has a right to tell us what to do with our sexuality and no one tells us has a right to tell us what to do with our gender, this is what we believe. We believe that God has that right. He is the creator. And as the creator, he has the right to tell us what to do with our body. And he has the right to tell us what to do with our sexuality. And he has the right to tell us what to do with our gender. And I know that some people have gender confusion. And and, and this is what I ask about that. As we see this seemingly explode across our world, this is what I would ask of the church. Can we be patient with people and love them to where they can find a relationship with God instead of turning our back and turning our doors shut? Can we be patient and love people like God loved us when we were deep in the miry clay? 
That's what I'm asking and that's what I believe. This is what I see. I see that the church loves alcoholics. I see that the church loves drug addicts. We we can and should love people. We should love them and we should be willing to help them find a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then when we get into these situations where there's gender confusion and, and, and listen, it's easy for you to be very judgmental about that until it touches your family and you have to carry the weight and the pain and the, and trying to figure out what's going on and, and And this is what we need to understand, that the one who created us isn't flawed. And I'm not saying this to elicit a response or score points on somebody who's going through the battle of gender confusion, but the word of God and simple biology. Again, I'm not trying to get a response from you. The word of God in simple biology still tells us and bears witness that God created us male and female. That's just the simple truth of it. And why do I say that? Do I say it as hate speech? No, I say it submitting to the design of the creator, the one that is above all, that knelt down into the dirt and fashioned man from the dirt of the earth and breathed into his lungs. I'm talking about the creator who, according to the word of God, took a rib from man and made a woman. And so I submit to the design of the creator. And at the same time, I can be patient and loving with people that don't understand that. You know what I find amazing? I find amazing that the New Testament church loved Paul, who was a former murderer. Actually, he was a murderer of people in the church. And I've thought many times how Paul must have stood in certain places preaching the gospel or testifying or in a home and look across and see a loved one of someone that he caused to die or was murdered and thought about how in the world did he cope with that? But what grace and what mercy flows from the church church and from God that will show love to someone who has gone through something like that. So I know many would say, if I feel this way, I should act on it. But I submit to you, isn't that the same argument that Eve used in the garden? Isn't it the same reasoning This is what I feel like doing, so I'll just act on it. And being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that we are perfect or without temptation. It means that we resist temptation and we give our bodies to Christ. Is there anybody in the room that is without temptation? No, of course not. Even Jesus was tempted, but we don't give in to our temptation to lie. We don't give in to our temptation to steal. We don't give in our, uh, into our temptation to indulge in drunkenness or into drugs or to murder or to commit adultery. We don't give in to our temptation to have a same-sex relationship. We resist. We stand because we have given our bodies to Christ. And we follow the pattern of our God. And as a church, we love people who are tempted because we have been tempted. And it's by the grace of God that we resist. And it's by the mercy of God that when we fall, we get back up. And so we love people who wrestle with the temptations. We love people who wrestle with addictions. 
How can we help people find a relationship with God if we don't show them love? If we don't show them love. This is who we're enemies of. We're not enemies of the culture of this world. We're in contrast to it. We're not enemies of people that have fallen into sin. Satan is our enemy. And this is what the church will do on that day when he is cast into outer darkness. We'll stand and cheer because he is the enemy of our soul. But we will not stand at hell and rejoice over people that go there. We love them. We love them. We love people who have fallen for his lies. You know why? Because we've all fallen for his lies. Has anybody ever fallen for a lie of Satan? You know what we do? We love them when they're ensnared by the traps of his temptation because we've all been there, right? Has anybody ever fallen into temptation? Of course. So we show love. And this is something that we need to understand as a church and you need to understand as an individual. There is a vast difference between temptation and sin. There's a vast difference. There's a difference between someone that is tempted to fall into adultery and someone that falls into adultery. Now, I know what Jesus said, but Jesus is talking about someone that has given their mind over to lust after a woman. I'm talking about something that happens as a temptation, and it happens to men and women every day of every week of every year. But being tempted is not the same as getting, giving into the sin. And being tempted with the same, self, same sex attraction is not the same thing as falling into a same sex relationship. And, and as a church, I want you to know that I have known people that have wrestled with same sex attraction that have never fallen into a relationship and they've lived godly celibate lives and they're some of my heroes. I've seen people that have been in successful marriages with people of the opposite sex and still have that love for God and hold against the temptation that is constantly uh, uh, in their mind. And, and I'll just say this, in just this past few weeks, I have found some incredible resources to help people who have wrestled with gender identity and same-sex attraction. And if you have someone or you know someone, email me, message me. I'll be glad to help you. This is what we believe. I I'm, I'm, I'm hope I'm not taking too long, but we believe that God is the creator. And we believe that him being the creator has put him in a place of authority in our life. And we believe the authority of his design. I mean, just look at how he designed us. It's obvious that man was designed for a woman and woman was designed for a man. And I want you to know in everything that I've said here today, I'm not talking about tolerance. Paul was very clear in the book of Corinthians on how we should have church discipline and how we should uh, help one another when we fall and how we should discipline people. There was one person that Paul said, throw him out and turn him over to Satan. But it was that same person that later Paul said, welcome him back because he has seen the error of his ways. So we're not talking about tolerance here, okay? We're talking about love. We're talking about being the church that God called us to be. 
And this is what we see in the Bible. We see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, and then Jesus quotes it in Matthew chapter 19. To save time, I'll just read Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 and 5. So I'm skipping through a scripture. And he said, and he answered them and said, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Verse number 5 says it like this. For, uh, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, now, because we're a church, there is emphasis on family. But I would like to say that there are people that aren't given to marriage. Paul, the person who wrote this, was not given to marriage. And we are so blessed to have many people that are single, that are strong leaders in this church. Also, we know that there are people that have been married but not had families. And again, the church has a tendency to put pressure on that. And this is what I say. If God didn't choose you to have a child, that means that he wants you to be a father or a mother to the many children that are in the church and influence them. And it means that it, there, there's nobody that is diminished by that. And I want to make that clear before I go on to the last part of this message. But this is what I want to say. Three quick points. When Jesus said that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife or cling to his wife and they shall be one flesh, he's making three points. His first point is that this new that marriage involves a new relational priority. He's leaving something. He's, he, the focus is not on physical. I, I've seen people that live right next door to their parents. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not geographical. I've seen people, well, I've got to move away. There's nothing. That, that's not what this means. What it means is my relational obligations and priorities are now to the person that I'm married to. So this is a good message for children that want their parents to still remain in charge of their life after they're married, and for parents that still want to be in charge of their children after they're married, that's not biblical. Marriage sets a new relational priority. And if, if we fail to prioritize that relationship, you know what it'll bring? It'll bring conflict. Who's really controlling things? It'll bring resentment. Because one spouse will feel like that the other spouse has let the parents just do whatever they want to. So your priority is now your spouse. The second thing that Jesus is saying here is that marriage involves a new relational permanence. We marry and we marry to be united, to clean. I know that there are situations where divorce is inevitable. I am not a fan of that. I see what it does to families. I know that sometimes it has to happen, but the truth of it is that's not the way that God designed us. God designed us to stay together. And some of the worst things that I have seen happen in a marriage, I've seen those marriages stay together and become strong marriages. And then I've seen other people dissolve their marriage over something that's very slight. And this is what I would say, fight with everything that you have for your marriage. Make it a priority. But this is what the Hebrew says there. We cling to each other. And to be united is a word that, that is used in covenants that means loyalty and faithfulness. I just say this to every man and woman in this place. 
You need to fight for the permanence of your marriage. You need to make sure there's nothing that will come between you and your wife, nothing that will come between you and your husband. Fight for that permanence. And then the third thing, and I close with this, is marriage involves a new relational process. This is what Jesus said. They will become one flesh. It's it's not a loss of individuality. Someone said, I know that two become one, but which one do they become? No, that's not the way it is. (laughs) This is not one being swallowed up by the other. This is two people that are so completely merging into each other's life that they become one functioning unit. And this is what God's plan is for married couples to develop that relationship, that oneness into their total relationship. And the oneness, the unity, the one flesh involves body, soul, and spirit. Physical oneness in marriage. And I've already talked about the sin of adultery, but, but that, that's, that's a breach of that contract. We want to make sure that we're one in marriage. In, in our soul, we become soulmates and friends and companionship. The, that, that walking together and loving each other. And then, of course, in the spirit, we are one in Christ by faith and we're developing our intimacy with God together. That's God's plans for marriage Two shall become one. And this is much more than just sharing the same residence. It's much more than sharing the same food. It's much more than sharing the same bed. It's two people giving themselves completely together until their lives are woven together into one. God bless our marriages. Will you stand with me? Amen. Now, this is what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask for our ushers to pass out the communion. I want to take communion together, so I'm asking you to stay another 10 minutes. Don't move around if you can help it. Friends would. They're passing them out for you at this time, or you have them. And I want to just talk as they're passing those out. And I need one up here, whoever has got those ushers, if you'll please bring me one. This is what I want you to know about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper... It's something that the church has always done together. Thank you, Daniel. This is something that the Lord said that we should do together. This is something that the Lord asked for us to take together. It is a supper that he gave his disciples on the last night of his ministry here before his crucifixion. And it's something that has been a part of the church ever since. Now, what is the significance of taking this? The significance of taking the Lord's Supper is that we are participating in something together that reminds us of what God has done for us. Because as we take this juice and as we eat this little wafer that's on top, what we're really reminding ourselves is about the death the shedding of blood that was for us of Jesus Christ and how much he loved us, that he gave all of that for us. And I would just like to read one passage of scripture in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There is one portion that I would just like for you to remember. It 
it says in verse 27, so anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That, now that sounds scary, but this is the truth of it. That when we hold this, it's not a party. And that's what was happening in the church in Corinth. They were just having a party. They were eating more than they should. And they didn't understand the sacredness of the moment. Paul goes on to say, that's why you should examine yourself. So that's what we're going to do here today. We're just going to examine ourselves. We're going to see if there's anything in our life that is not pleasing to God. And we're just going to say a word of repentance. We're going to ask the Lord, is there any attitude in me that there shouldn't be? And we're going to ask for repentance. So that's what I want to do right now. I want to just pray that prayer. And this is what I would ask you. I'd ask you to just close your eyes and bow your head. And, and as a church, as an individual, I would just ask you to pray, Lord, is there anything in me that is not pleasing to you? And, and, and if there is, just repent of it right now. Lord, thank you so much for this moment that we have come to after 21 days of prayer and 21 days of fasting we we've come to this moment dear lord where we end our time of prayer time of fasting time of devotion we end it with taking this lord's supper together i just pray right now lord you would look into every heart that is here and you would see is there any of us oh god that our life hasn't been pleasing or there's things there let us just examine ourselves, God. And I pray right now just a prayer of repentance. You see my own heart, Lord, and you see whatever is there, whatever attitude, whatever action has not been pleasing. And I, I just ask you to forgive me, Lord. And I ask that everybody in this place would just take this moment to just offer that prayer of forgiveness. I, I ask you, Lord, to forgive me. Will you just say that with me, Lord? Please forgive me, Lord. Just forgive us, Lord, as we examine ourselves. And, and I thank you for your incredible sacrifice on Calvary, that blood that flows so that we now can stand here forgiven. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. If you'll just take and peel back that top layer, take out that wafer, go ahead and peel back that next layer so that we can have this juice here in just a moment. This is what Paul said to the church in Corinth. He said that he saw the Lord himself and the Lord instructed him on this. And the Lord told Paul when he broke the pieces, this is what he said. This is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This little bread is just symbolic of the body of Jesus Christ that he gave to be broken and torn and rendered. Rent for us. So that we could have this opportunity to have forgiveness. And so as you have this bread, let's just hold it up, this little cup. Lord, we remember today how you gave yourself on Calvary. We remember how your body was beaten, pierced, stabbed, and how you gave it all for us, Lord. And we take this in remembrance of that moment. Thank you, Jesus. Let's eat together. He also told Paul 
This cup is the new covenant between God and His people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. And the the blood is the new covenant. It means that now sin is removed. And now the presence of God can dwell in my life. There's no more boundaries or separation between me and God. And that's why He shed His blood for us so that we could enter back into relationship with Him so we could be forgiven of our sins. And so as you hold this up just for a moment, Lord, we see this as a great victory for us. The blood that You shed and that dropped on those dusty hills, it was for us and it's still alive today, bringing us the freedom, dear Lord, that You paid for. You you paid it with Your blood And we do this in remembrance of you, O Lord. Now, I wonder if we could just lift our hands and love the Lord together. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Thank you for this, O Lord. Thank you for the Lord's Supper. We give you all of the glory. I want... Andrew to lead us in a chorus and Friendswood, I love you so much. I'm turning you back over to Pastor Bo. I pray God's blessings upon you. Houston campus, I want us to just let Andrew lead us in a chorus here for a few minutes and let's just let this moment, this sacred moment linger in our hearts before Tito comes to close our service. God bless you. I love you, Life Church. <laughs>